Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what great promises. Your character, your purpose for us, your promises made to us in your word. You are faithful. And these are an anchor for us. An anchor for our souls in a storm-tossed sea. When at times it is difficult to see light, difficult to have hope, easy to be discouraged. You are the solid rock on which we stand. You are our anchor, our tether. And your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. We pray even this morning, O God, that you would use your word, always so timely, that you would use your word this morning to stay our hearts on you, that we might might be encouraged, that we might have our gaze lifted, that we might once again long for heaven, reorient our thoughts and our affections. God, we need you. We pray that By your Holy Spirit, we might submit to your word, obey your word, be encouraged by your word, be convicted by your word. God, we thank you for revealing yourself so clearly, so helpfully, and we ask that it would do so in power today. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we are continuing our way through. And we will look this morning at Romans 12, 12. We're looking at this section of directives for the Christian life. What does it look like to live out the Christian life? What does the reign of grace look like in flesh? When the gospel invades a life, what does it produce? And Paul here in this section of Romans 12 has given 13 directives for life together in the church. After verse 13, these will expand a little bit to how believers are to interact with those outside the church. But in this section, 13 in a row, are directives aimed at believers and how we live together in the body of Christ. And you'll remember the church is compared to a physical body where each of the parts are interdependent. That is, we depend on one another, we're connected to one another, we need one another. And so how are we to relate We've been directed already by the Apostle Paul to love genuinely, to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good, to love Christians unbreakably, to honor others competitively, to cultivate disciplined exertion, to stoke spiritual fervor, and to serve Christ. We will add to that this morning with three more directives, all of these found in verse 12. Here's what Paul adds to the list, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And out of a total lack of originality, those are your three outline points. Exactly what the text says. First of all, rejoicing in hope. And remember, these are uh, modifiers of something up above. They're modifying the overarching idea of selfless love, of unhypocritical love. How do we relate to one another in the body of Christ? We love one another. And one of the characteristics of that is a rejoicing in hope. And this rejoicing in hope carries the idea of a command. And our world knows how precious a commodity hope is. 
Hope essentially means having good feelings about the future. Its opposite is fear or having bad feelings about the future. And everyone lives by hope. Medical professionals know how important it is for a patient to have hope in a positive outcome. There are physiological benefits to that. How detrimental fear is physiologically. Stephen Callahan was a racer on sailboats. And he set out in 1981 to cross the Atlantic Ocean solo in a race. His ship capsized near Portugal. And if you're traveling westward across the Atlantic, that leaves almost the entire Atlantic for him to cross alone in an inflatable raft, which he did in 71 days. And running out of supplies very quickly, he learned to collect rainwater, he learned to catch fish and eat them, he learned which fish had toxic parts and made him sick. He learned by experience what it meant to be thirsty for all of that salt water around and begin to ingest it and then go delirious. And yet he never gave up hope that he'd be rescued by a passing ship or seen by an overhead flying aircraft. And many ships passed him and passed him by. Airplanes flew over and he signaled, signaled them with his reflective mirror and they never radioed for help. And he washed up on the shores of an island in the Caribbean. And he testifies how critical hope is to survival in that kind of situation. To give up is death. The rabies victims know the opposite side of this. If you get rabies and the symptoms of rabies manifest themselves, it is already too late for you. It means that rabies has taken hold in the central nervous system. And it produces an abject fear that removes all hope. And the rabies victim is fully conscious up until the moment of death, fully aware of his hopeless situation. And completely in fear of everything that would help him. He begins to dehydrate and the sufferer of rabies feels hydrophobia, fear of water. Such that any water taken on the throat, on the parched throat, is immediately convulsed outward and you get a foaming at the mouth. In fact, a fear of water, a fear of drinking water, a fear of having an IV hookup with fluids in it has induced many rabies patients to fly out of their hospital beds, out of windows, onto concrete below. There has been one documented case of a survivor of rabies, a young woman in Wisconsin, who they stopped her heart in an experimental attempt to have her survive. And she is the one survivor of rabies after the symptoms have progressed. By the way, lots of people get bit by bats and dogs and other rabbit animals and get rabies and get treated and survive. So if you get bit by something, go to the hospital immediately. But a remarkable feature of this disease is the removal of hope and the replacement of hope with fear. If hope means crossing your fingers or some sort of wishful thinking, or the power of positive thinking, then we're all in a lot of trouble. I hoped I would make the 8th grade football team. And against several odds, I made the team. 
I hoped I would get playing time in the championship game under the lights with my dad on the sidelines. I did not get to play. Not one snap. And I spent the entire game on the sidelines with a lump in my throat, too disappointed even to cheer. Hope is only as good as its object. If hope were grounded in crossing our fingers or wishing for the best or repeating the cry of that little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, then we are all in a lot of trouble. There would be no way to obey this command to rejoice in hope. Hope would be empty and fleeting. It would only be a wistful longing that the future would turn out okay. And while some people in this life may get what they think they want for a short time, that kind of hope is ultimately always dashed on the rocks of reality, smashed by circumstances, and finally destroyed by death. Biblical hope, however, is not wishful thinking. The biblical concept of hope expresses a confident trust in God, a confident expectation for the future, and a counting on God's promises. Hope, in fact, is the certainty of trust in a divinely ordained future. In the New Testament, hope is located in a person, God, in a place, heaven, and in a perspective, a perspective that radically reorients the Christian life. Biblical hope cannot and will not ever be disappointed. Biblical hope is confidence in God and confidence in God's promises, and God has never lied. He will always come through. He has already secured future good for his children, and nothing can take that away. Unbelievers have no such hope. Not that they never think about the future, not that they ever have, not that they never have good feelings about the future. They just have no ground for it. And no one has any guarantee of another day on this earth. And what awaits anyone outside of Christ after he breathes his last breath is abject hopelessness. Dark despair in unending torment under the wrath of God forever. Dante, in his 14th century epic poem describing hell, imagined a sign over the entrance which read, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. But for the Christian, hope is an essential component of the Christian life. In 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us that we are born again unto a what? A living hope. You're born again unto it. It it belongs to you by Christian constitution. What does it mean then in Romans 12, 12 to rejoice in hope? Rejoice simply means to take joy in something, to locate your joy somewhere. To rejoice in hope means to locate your joy in confident expectation of God and his promises. To rejoice, to be glad, to delight in, to take joy in It means here we are directed to locate our joy in anticipation. To take your joy and place it in the realm of anticipation. To be glad about what you do not yet have. To take joy in what you're looking forward to. 
If you've ever planned a vacation, you, you know this experientially. The vacation isn't really about the enjoyment of 10 days away. In part, it's about the enjoyment of three months ahead of the, the very real sense in which that is the Lord to it, dreaming about it, being distracted by it. There's a very real sense in which that is the Christian life. We look forward to, we dream about, and we are distracted by heaven, our home, our citizenship, being in God's presence. Now, there are bad hope locations. The Bible's very clear about some places you should not place your hope. Riches is one. They fly away. Listen to Psalm 52, 7. Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. It does not go well for that man. It is not wise to place your hope in men. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Trust in man, in human resources, in human ingenuity, in people for your hope, your joy, your satisfaction for ultimate solutions is misplaced hope and it's diametrically opposed to hope in God. It's a bad place to place your hope in the thought that people will do the right thing. Eventually they just won't. It's not good to place your hope in religious inheritance. That is, what is handed down to you by your parents or by your culture, rather than a relationship to God that is personal and your own. God indicted his nation, Israel, over these very things. In Jeremiah 7, 4, the prophet of God said, Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. People had treated a spiritual inheritance, in other words, not their own personal relationship to God, but the trappings of religious culture they got from their parents. They treated it as something like a talisman, a good luck charm, something I can hold on to. I'm safe as long as we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Look, if you don't have God himself, the temple is nothing. The city of Bethel was looked to as a refuge. Jeremiah 48.13 says, And Moab will be ashamed at Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. In other words, Israel believed that they were safe with God because they were Israel, while they entertained idolatries that infuriated God. And of course, idols are a terrible place to look for, to hope. Habakkuk 2.18, what profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Do you understand the problem with sticks and stones idolatry? You chop down a tree and carve something out of it and bow down and worship it and yield your life to it and expect it to do things for you. And there's no difference between the non-sticks and stones version of idolatry either. Whatever we set up as an idol in the heart, whatever we go after, personal achievement, fame, fortune, relationships, money, whatever it is, 
that we choose to love more than we love God. We, we carve it out for ourselves and we bow down to it. The, the real God in idolatry is self. I want to do whatever I have to do for this idol so that the idol will give me what I want because I want to be God. That's the heart of idolatry. And it is a false hope. Idolatry can never transcend you. And you need to hope in something much bigger than you. Health is not a reliable hope. Just read Ecclesiastes 12. The dark days are coming. Health falls apart. Friendships are not a great place to place your ultimate hope. Beloved friends succumb to mortality. Relationships change. Friends may not always be there for you. The deliberations of men are a false hope. Psalm 94, 11, The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are mere breath. Calculable forces, resources, defenses, protections, insurance policies, treaties, the strength of other nations, all of these things are presented in Scripture as a false basis for hope. Hosea 10, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way in your numerous warriors. Was it good to have a standing army? Sure. But if that's where your trust is, that is a bad trust. If that is where your hope is, it's misplaced. Isaiah 31.1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, in horsemen because they're very strong but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor do they seek the Lord. 2 Kings 18, 24, How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? The enemies of God mocked Israel for their false hope in armies. It is a bad hope to trust in physical entities whether chariots or horses or patriot missiles, these things are a false hope. Financial securities are a false hope, a steady job, investment strategies, a home, a 401k. And you know that hope in religion is a vain hope. Hope in religious works, religious duties, attempting to merit your standing before God by what you do. That is a vain hope. Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, who lived during the apostles' lifetime. And he wept at his own deathbed, saying this, There are two ways before me, the one to the Garden of Eden, the other to hell. And I do not know on which God leads me. How can I help weeping? This rabbi was called the Lamp of Israel. He was hailed in his day as the premier teacher of what it meant to be a faithful follower of the God of the Bible. And his hope was in his own duty and performance. Wept on his deathbed. Another rabbi who died in 279 AD, Rabbi Yochanan bar Napaha. At his death, he asked to be buried not in white clothes nor in black clothes, but in neutral shades. 
And he said that was on purpose so that he would not feel out of place if he found himself either with the righteous or with the wicked. What a tragedy to die with no hope, no confidence that your sins had been paid for and you would meet your maker with a clean record. And the most religious men of their days had placed their hope in their own religion and their own merit and confessed the emptiness of it at the very end. Hope in human works and hope in religious effort can never give assurance of a right standing with God. And this is why the two prominent schools of thought in ancient Judaism debated for two whole years the question of whether or not it was better to be born. And they concluded at the end of two years that it was indeed better to never have been created. Why? Because all of their duties, all of their performance, all of their religious exercises amounted to a hopeless end with no assurance that they would be in heaven. And such will be the conclusion of everyone who places his hopes in man, in man's efforts, in religion, in anyone who hopes in himself. Listen, you think you are good enough or you've done enough to possibly merit God's favor. That is a deception. It is a deception you must repent of. It is a deception you can be freed of and have life. One writer has said, he who entrusts his eternal future to men will stand condemned by God. But hope in God never fails. Listen to Psalm 33, 18. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Listen, you place your confident trust in God's loving kindness. That's the Old Testament word for grace. And God's eye is on you for favor. And so here in Romans 12, 12, we are directed to rejoice in hope. Commanded to locate our joy in hope. And, and why can we do that? Just look at who God is. Look at his characteristics, his attributes, and listen to his promises. Psalm 16, 11, At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37, 4, you will receive the desires of your heart, you who seek him. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 is promised living waters and an unending river of delight from God the source. Daniel 12, 2 and 3 says those who trust in him will shine like stars forever. Romans eight twenty nine promises that those who love Christ will be conformed to Jesus' image. We will resemble him as far as it is possible for finite beings to resemble the second person of the Trinity. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, we will put on immortality. No longer subject to the curse and the fall and to mortal existence. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, the promise that we will actually have victory over death. 2 Peter 3, 13, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. No more sickness, sadness, sorrow, pain. Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16, we were promised a new country, a better country, a heavenly home. And the best promise of all of them, Revelation 21, 3, God with us and we with God. He will be our God and we will be his people and we will be with him in unmediated fellowship forever, face to face. God has secured by grace an eternal, infinite goodness at home in heaven, that puts to shame every difficulty we face here. 
And if heaven is your joy, temporary setbacks cannot rob you. They can't take away this real joy. They can't take away the content and assurance of this real hope. Because what is set outside of this world cannot be taken away by anything in this world. The Christian's hope lies beyond circumstance. It lies beyond anything circumstances can touch. Why is joy and hope fundamental to being a Christian? Joy and hope is an evidence of an eternal perspective. It means you know that this isn't your home. Your home's not here. You belong with God. Joy and hope sets you apart from the world around you. You don't look like the world when you rejoice in hope. Joy and hope displays a love for God himself. Joy and hope is the positive side of repentance. Listen, you walked away from the stuff that will burn and you walked into the stuff that lasts. Joy and hope is fundamental to being a Christian because our salvation is not yet fully realized. Who hopes for what he already has? We don't yet have everything that God has purchased and guaranteed in our salvation. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are to be most pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. That is a guarantee that what has been promised us is yet to come. The Christian's best day here pales in comparison to the worst day in eternity. Hope for a Christian is located in the security of salvation by Christ. No one can undo what he has done for believers. It is located in the superiority of knowing Christ. Jesus is better than everything else. And the hope for a Christian is located in the sweetness of eternity with Christ. Heaven is better than anything here because it is with him. These things set you apart from non-Christians. Your whole outlook is different. Your whole outlook on life is built on hope. Your life is a rejoicing in hope. And this kind of rejoicing is not a giddy optimism, but an aspect of the Holy Spirit's fruit in the life of a believer, unmitigated by circumstances, untouchable by the world. Your life, Christian, is not erected on the shifting sands of circumstance, but on the solid bedrock of God's inviolable promises. Nate Busnitz, in his really helpful book on biblical hope, I I recommend that you get it and read it, writes this, If you hold on to the eternal promises of God, you can manage the temporal concerns of this world. If you hold on to God's promises, you can manage temporal concerns. Are you rejoicing in hope? Are you locating your joy in anticipation? It's a simple directive. It's impossible without the gospel. You can't live like this. You can't hope like this. You can't locate your joy in what you do not yet have. If you're not in Christ, if your perspective has not been fundamentally changed by coming to grips with your sin and coming to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this simple directive is so critical for our life together in the body of Christ. We need this. We need to rub on each other and we need to be contagious in our rejoicing and hope. Number 10 in our list of directives for the Christian life. Middle of verse 12, persevere in tribulation. Persevere in tribulation. This word persevere is simply a compound word that means to live under, to abide under, or to remain under. 
Think about that. Abide under affliction, persecution, tribulation. I don't know if you've ever gone camping. You get away from the comforts of home on purpose. And when you get there, you try to make your temporary residence a little less uncomfortable. And I know there are different kinds of camping. Right? There's the wilderness trekking, backpacking, where you walk for a long way, carrying everything you're going to need. Maybe you pull up your pickup truck to a campsite already prepared with electricity. Maybe you've got one of those RVs. In my house, um, RV came to stand for house truck. That's just what, hey, look, Dad, look at that house truck. 40-foot-long house on wheels with all the comforts. Maybe you set up a tent in your own backyard and camp, and that usually lasts for a couple hours, and then you come back inside. Maybe you've set up a tent in your living room. Whatever it is, whatever style of camping you do, and, and my sister proudly had a luggage tag on her suitcase that said, I love not camping. Right? You may be in that category too. You arrange your temporary living space when you get there. You get everything where you want it. The tent, the firewood, the matches, flashlights, camp stove, water, sleeping bag, camera, food, cooler, fishing gear, surfboards, camp chairs, toilet paper, camp slippers, maps, compass, ice axe, skis, a GPS and transponder, a first aid kit, Air mattresses, feather pillows, satin pajamas, the makeup kit, the curling iron, the hairspray, the movies, the music, the generator. And if you're in a place where there's bears, you got to protect all of that stuff. I, I grew up backpacking with my family in bear country, and we had strict orders not to put the Snickers bar in the pocket. And we put all the food up in canisters and hung it from trees because the bear would go through the tent and through you to get the Snickers bar. But you have to get all of your stuff in its place so that you can live there. It's going to be your home after all. For a whole night. <laughs> or maybe a week. And so you want to be as comfortable as possible. Maybe you even name your campsite. Are you a camper? Have you named your campsite? You and I as Christians have a home away from home. We have a temporary residence. A place we are dwelling. It's called life on this earth. It's not our home. We're, we're camping. We're trekking. We're sojourning. And we all have different levels of trying to make it as comfortable as we can make it. Different uh, kinds of equipment that we like to bring along. The Bible refers to our bodies as tents that get torn down. And the Bible refers to our life here as a sojourn. This is not our real home. Our permanent residence is in heaven. And, and maybe the, the Bible has a name for our campsite here. Uh, camp affliction, camp tribulation, camp trouble, camp hardship. Maybe you've named your own camping site one of those things after a few days. And Paul here gives us this command, persevere in tribulation. Abide under it. Live there. It's a command. Affliction here is the word for affliction or oppression, vexation or harassment. It was used in the Old Testament of the exodus, of exile, and of the end times. It was used personally for external pressures and internal agony. 
In the New Testament, the same word is used of persecution, imprisonment, derision, poverty, external difficulties, physical duress, inner sorrow, anxiety, fear, mortal threat. These are the inescapable realities that Christians experience in this life. The sufferings of Christ in his members, in his body. It's used also of the great tribulation and the future judgment of God on the unrepentant. And this idea of affliction is fundamental for the Christian life. The command here, live under it, defines the Christian life. How are we to take up residence under hard times? Listen, your, your campsite, your temporary residence away from home is, is called affliction and you, and you have all of that equipment and, and you have the knowledge that it takes to camp there. There are some things I think we need. I have them up on the screen for you. First of all, we need to observe the inescapable reality of affliction in the Christian life. In other words, it's normal. Suffering in the Christian life is normal. Notice in Romans 12, 12 that Paul assumes there will be affliction. The command given is to take up residence under it. Take your coat off, pull up a chair, get comfortable. Affliction is part of the deal. This is your house, your temporary abode for now. This is where you live. Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Acts 14, 22 The disciples were strengthened. They were encouraged in their faith. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, Paul writes, So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. We Christians have been destined in this life for affliction. 1 Peter 4.12 and 13, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It comes upon you for your testing, not as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Romans 5.2, Paul says, we've been introduced into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in our suffering. It's part of the grace in which we stand. And you can try to ignore that reality. You can try to redefine the Christian life. You can turn on TV Christianity, the believe in Jesus, he'll make your life comfortable message. But I think we need to understand that this is normal. A second piece of equipment we need to live here under affliction is to embrace the divine purpose of affliction in the Christian life. God has his purposes in our facing difficulty. In Romans 5, 3 to 5, we discover that God's purposes are our own perseverance, our proven character, and hope. Hope doesn't disappoint. In Hebrews 12, we discover God's fatherly discipline, our good, our personal holiness, and the peaceful fruit of righteousness are what God has in mind for our affliction. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, we realize that our present sufferings Produce for us an eternal weight of glory. One significant purpose for your suffering here is actually the production in eternity of a weight of glory that far outweighs the weightiness of our sufferings. So that those sufferings Paul calls light and momentary. Listen, they're not light and momentary when you're going through them. 
They're only light and momentary when the scales are tipped with an eternal perspective. James 1 tells us that the divine purpose of affliction in the Christian life is a testing, endurance, perfection and completion, lacking nothing, maturity in the Christian life. How do you get mature? You let afflictions produce their intended results. Where do you get those? Oh, whenever various trials occur. Oh, so what should I do when those come? Take joy. Rejoice. It's counterintuitive in the world's perspective. This is spiritual living. In Mark 4, trials reveal phony Christians. In 2 Corinthians 1, trials give the one under trial experience, real-time experience with the comfort of God and then a platform to comfort others with the comfort with which you've been comforted. In 2 Corinthians 1.6, our trials and afflictions are used by God to produce salvation in the lives of others. And in Colossians 1.24, those sufferings that Christians face are a presentation of the gospel. To summarize all of that, what is God's divine purpose for affliction in the Christian life? Refine our character, renew our hope, reveal our faith, reward faithfulness, and represent the gospel. Now we need to embrace God's divine purpose. A third piece of equipment for living under affliction is to cultivate the right response to affliction in the Christian life. What should we do? James 1.2, count it as joy. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks. Romans 5.3, exult. Romans 12.12, abide under it. And abiding under it, we're not asking the question, how do I get out of this affliction? But we ought to be asking, what shall I get out of this affliction? Romans 8.18, do the math. Our present sufferings are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You don't even put them in the same sentence. Not worthy to be compared. And so the command here is to persevere, to abide under, to take up residence underneath affliction. It's a normal part of the Christian life. God has his purposes in it for our good and his glory. And so we seek to respond appropriately. It means to trust God when my circumstances aren't changing. It's hard. It's really hard. And what God commands here, he provides the strength for. And you've been through hardships. Many of us in this body right now are going through hardships and can testify. God's kindness is there. God's presence is there. God's nearness is there. And even if no one else feels what I feel, God knows and he loves me and he's promised things. And if it seems like everything is dark, I can hold on to that beam of light. And we need each other in this to rejoice in hope together as a body of Christ. To abide under afflictions together as members in the body of Christ. And then, eleventhly, to be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. The last one here in verse 12. New American Standard Bible reads, be devoted to prayer. 
NIV says, be faithful in prayer. ESV, be constant in prayer. The old King James, I like it. We don't use these words this way anymore, but continuing instant in prayer. And that captures the couple of ideas inherent in what Paul says here. This is an ongoing practice, an ongoing discipline of staying right there where prayer is, being instant in it. Constantly being right there with prayer. This is to uh, intentionally attach yourself to prayer all the time. That's the command here. And the language of prayer is essentially help. It is the heartbeat of dependence. It is the recognition of the creature-creator distinction. That is, God is God and I depend on him for every breath. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes I live like a practical atheist. I can live independently. Prayerless living is independent living. I've got what it takes to get through life, to muscle through. Prayer-filled life is dependent living. God, help, I know you're there. It's also the language of adopted sons and daughters. We cry out by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, Abba, Daddy, tender affections for our Father who loves to give good gifts, who never gives sons snakes and stones when they ask for bread, but who lavishes good things upon us. To pray, to attach yourself to prayer, to be devoted to prayer is to cry out in humble, affectionate, reverent love for your Father. And it is to confess your dependence. I need you, God, I need you. It is to anticipate heaven when prayer is turned to present praise will be in his presence. And we no longer go through the non-immediate, the mediated agency of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and going in between on our behalf and not being able to see the one whom we love. No, we will be in his presence and we will see him. And for now, prayer is a forward-thinking anticipation of that greater fullness and culmination. Prayer is trust, prayer is reliance, prayer is a dependence on God. A regular pattern of disciplined attaching yourself to prayer is a right view of things. It's a recognition that if anything good is in me, it is produced by God. If anything good comes through me, it is produced by God. If God is going to do anything good in this next thing in life, this next event, this next endeavor, then God himself must be the one who does the work. He's the only one that can do work in and through us that redounds to his glory, lasts for eternity, is not burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. And so what is your next move, Christian? Pray. What is your next step? Pray. What is your next decision? Pray. This is a right view of things. I want God to be at work or else whatever I'm doing is in vain. 
The Holy Spirit must be supernaturally at work. Or else all is in vain. We so often live like atheists, independent, believing that the universe is a mechanism. If I punch in the right programming code, out comes the right solution. If I bring down the form on the sheet of metal, out comes the widget. If I check off the boxes, these things result. We have a one plus one equals two view of things and what we do. It is so natural, fleshly, temporal. Pray. It is the language of dependence. To do as Paul says here, to be devoted to prayer, to continually attach myself to prayer, means times of intentional setting aside of prayer. I had to take a class in seminary called prayer. And the assignment for the class was to pray an hour straight every day, all semester. Singularly the best seminary assignment I ever had. We even had to write reports about what we prayed about. And it seemed so silly. I can't believe I have to turn in a report about what I prayed. Until about a week in and you realized, wow, this is life-changing. What I learned about myself is sometimes you have to pray until you're praying. I don't know if you've ever set aside intentional time for prayer. And dear Lord, you start a conversation. What was I going to have for breakfast again? I'm sorry. Dear Lord. Oh, that meeting at 10 a.m. Lord, I'm so sorry. You know what a great prayer is in those moments? Lord, help me pray. The world fights against me wanting to pray right now and it's the most needful thing. I love you. I don't love you very well. God, help me pray. In those intentional times of prayer, I have found that taking up scriptures, prayers, is often really helpful. The Psalms were prayers set to harps and lyres. I'm not saying find a harp. It's just a great exercise every time you have scripture open to read your Bible dependently, prayerfully, right? This is discipline one for you who have been through Build and through Wellspring and student ministries and every level of ministry in this church that you come to the word of God in your Bible reading to meet with the God of the word. It is the heartbeat of dependence. I, I can't wait to meet with my savior. I can't wait to meet with my maker. Is there anyone more interesting Is there any presence more needful? I personally like Paul's prayers. A number of years ago, I just read through Paul's letters and wrote out every time Paul was praying and put them in one journal. And that radically affected my prayer life. I cataloged what kinds of things did Paul pray for? And what kind of things am I praying for? I find myself at that time regularly praying for uh, the next exam that I would pass it, which might have been praying for supernatural intervention over and against my study habits. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for that. And my prayer requests were often travel mercies for this person and that person. Listen, 
pray for travel mercies. The roads are dangerous. Pray for health concerns. These things weigh on the heart and the mind and the body in significant ways and they are the trials that we will all go through one time or another or many times over. But if you superimpose the Apostle Paul's prayers onto those circumstances, I think you will find that the way you pray for that next exam or that illness, that malady, or that aunt making a journey from Cleveland to Philadelphia will be different. Learn to to pray the way Scripture prays. I don't know about you, I have found myself in intentional times of prayer at a loss for what to pray until I start praying with Paul's words in Ephesians. And then there's a lot to pray about. Insert names and situations and pray Paul's prayers for those things. And then you come to small group and and you share prayer requests with people and you give yourself reminders and you tap them out in your phone and you put them in your calendar and you give yourself reminders and you sit down to pray and you realize an hour a day is not enough. We need to pray. We need to be devoted to prayer. We need to make a disciplined effort to attach ourselves to prayer. An intentional time set aside is merely the foretaste for a day filled with dependence on God. You find yourself at every step thinking about God. He's here. Depending on him, leaning on him, crying out to him, unloading burdens, which he loves for us to unload. And listen, there are times when prayer just happens. You actually feel your need acutely and you cry out to him. This command to be devoted to prayer, to attach ourselves to prayer, means to recognize that need all the time. When you're in a foxhole and bullets are flying, you're praying. Get out of the foxhole and we relax. You are just as needy in the victory parade after the battle as you were when the bullets are flying. So we pray. A discipline, practiced habit. What does it mean to devote ourselves to prayer at Grace Bible Church? It means, first of all, that you, individual Christian, see and feel your need and depend on Him. It means that we pray together. It means that you attach yourself to a small group. It means that those that live under the same roof with you, you, you pray. I know it's customary in American culture to pray before a meal. I like that. It's a good reminder. Mean it. Mean it when you pray. I like to thank God for the specific items on my plate and the people who made them. That's fun. Sometimes I like to pray after I've taken a few bites so that I know what I'm giving thanks for. That's fun. You're meeting with people, experiencing difficulty, giving counsel or help to each other, pray. You pray in your small groups, and I I love our small groups. Uh, I've been in many prayer meetings where there was a lot of talk and then a closing prayer. We talk a lot about our needs, and then we close the last five minutes. But uh, the small groups I've been at here, they, they just pray. 
It's a great strategy to pray your needs out loud and then others around you can pick up on those things and pray as well and write them down and keep praying. There's a group that meets here Sunday mornings to pray for our service. You can join them. They pray for things like the present pressing needs of members of this body. They pray for our service as we gather, that we would be soft and humble before the word of God, that we would benefit from corporate singing, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs one another, speaking truth and love. They, they pray for those under trial. They pray for those who are in our gathering who don't yet know Christ, that God would do a supernatural work by his Holy Spirit and raise the dead right in our very midst. You can join them on a Sunday morning and pray. You can pray at home for those very things. You don't have to be together with the group that does that. You can lead your family in prayer on a Saturday night and prepare your home to be here together for a corporate gathering. There are lots of ways and strategies to pray. I would commend to you D.A. Carson's book, Spiritual Reformation. Um, It gives a, a remarkable strategy for incorporating the theology of Paul's prayers into your own. It's called a call to spiritual reformation. We need each other. We're dependent on each other. So thankful for the Lord's directives to help us know how to live with one another. Let's pray. God, we are supremely indebted to you. We love you. um, And yet we recognize the poverty of our love for you, the insufficiency of our love for you. And we know we will never do this perfectly until we are in your presence. But in the meantime, God, we pray, we depend upon you, we just express our need to you together. Lord, we long for the day when prayer will be turned to praise, when faith will be turned to sight when we will be in your very presence and get to love you perfectly. Jesus Christ, your son, is the one who has made this possible and it is him we seek to glorify. In Jesus' name, amen.